Welcome to our back to school episode. We have a special guest, Josh McFadden, who is an associate professor and Canada Research Chair at the University of Prince Edward Island. It was pretty cool to come back to that. My, my last job here in BI was a snowplow driver. So, <laughs> and I grew up on a farm. It's kind of fun to, to uh, have this opportunity to do something totally different and to use my mind and uh, to, to teach students. And it's just a, it's a real thrill to work This is a Corner Stories podcast. Well, Josh, we are uh, really glad that you're able to join us this morning. Um, It's been a joy to get to know you and your family over the last couple years. Uh, We live in your old home. Like, it's just kind of a a neat way that our lives have crossed. Uh, Tell us a bit about you and your family, and we'll kind of start there. Yeah, so I grew up in PEI. Um, I've lived here, well, I've lived away more than I've lived here, actually, because I've been off-island for quite a long time, but uh, grew up in Hunter River area, Hazel Grove, actually. And I um, uh, went to, you know, graduated from Bluefield. Uh, then I went away, and that's, of course, always a big moment for an Islander, going away. And uh, I went to a little Bible college in Peterborough, Ontario, um, and I that's where I met Colleen, and uh, we just we started dating pretty early that fall, and uh, been together ever since. And uh, we've been all around, if not the world, then certainly all around North America. Um, but we're very fortunate to be able to come home to PEI. And now home is it's PEI's home for her too, and and she really uh, loves it here. And so we're just thrilled to be back. But yeah, I'm a local guy. Um, I work at UPEI. I'm a professor um, and the Canada Research Chair, which is. Really, that's another long story that we can get into, but um, it was pretty cool to come back to that. My, my last job here in BI was a snowplow driver. So, <laughs> and I grew up on a farm. It's kind of fun to, to uh, have this opportunity to do something totally different and to use my mind and uh, to, to teach students. And it's just a, it's a real thrill to work there, actually. Um, our kids have got to know your kids a little bit. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the, the children dynamic in your home. <laughs> yeah, so um, my path into academia was was very convoluted. It was never something that I kind of knew much about as a teenager, even a young 20-something. I, I started taking university courses because I wanted to be a, I thought, well, I wanted a job, but I thought being a teacher would be a good one. Um, but I was um, sort of just compelled by uh, by my time at Bible college, and that really kicked off for both Colleen and I a whole bunch of questions about God and the larger world and where we fit in it. And so we got married uh, in 2000, and I was um, just 20 years old, and and she was you know, she's 21 at that time, and we uh, we decided to live here in PEI for a little while. And then um, her parents are back in her parents were back in uh, Whitby, Ontario, and so we we in the last year of my undergrad decided to move back there, and I finished my undergrad at Trent University in Peterborough. We were actually dorm parents or residence directors at the little Bible college that we met at, which is really cool. And uh, little we, we never thought we'd be parents. We're actually early on we kind of thought you know uh, maybe kids are for other people. Maybe we'll have kids. Maybe not. Who knows what God's plan is for us? But we certainly didn't think of having a huge family <laughs> and uh, and so that path was convoluted as well and by the time um, I got into grad school 
which again was kind of, um, I'd actually gotten rejected from a couple of teachers college. I got into one and rejected from a couple, and then I got accepted to a grad program at the University of Waterloo. And I'm like, I don't really know much about this being a grad student, but uh, it, they're actually paying me to be a teacher's assistant and uh, giving a scholarship. So I'm like, oh, let's go, let's try it. So we went there, we had really great friends in Waterloo. Um, her best friend actually uh, lived in Waterloo. And we, so we went there, it seemed like a cool opportunity. And then uh, one thing turned into another, she got a job there, I started doing my PhD. Um, and about halfway through that, let's just say we were practicing the natural family planning method. And uh, you know what they say about people, you know who the, what they call people practicing that method? Parents. <laughs> and so suddenly we had Cameron and he was uh, a bit of a surprise, but a, of course a very welcome one. Um, and, but I was halfway through a PhD and thinking, okay, well, um, this is a, interesting time to have a kid, but now that we have one, might as well have one more. <laughs> and uh, a few, no time at all, we had, we, uh, Colleen was pregnant and we, um, she, she noticed, I think I'm kind of showing a little faster than most people should be at this time. It was usually like eight weeks along. And uh, so she went to her family doctor and the family doctor said, well, I just kind of routinely send people for ultrasounds. And, she um, went and I wasn't even gonna go because I'd seen the first ultrasound with Cameron and I was really busy, but I'm like, all right, I'm gonna slip in for this one. And uh, so there I was in, in the waiting room. I still remember uh, Elton John's Tiny Dancer was playing. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, that's kinda, maybe that's an omen. Maybe, maybe we're gonna have a girl. Um, and then there was this long hallway, I still remember it. Um, and, and she was in the room down at the end and the technician kind of called me in and I, I walked down this very long hallway and I actually just left the door ajar or open a bit because it was so far away from the waiting room. I was thinking, you know, this would probably be quick in and out. And uh, she goes, you're going to want to close the door. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, so I'll close the door. And then I get over to the table and Colleen's laying there getting the ultrasound done. And, and uh, she goes, um, so do you have twins or triplets in your family, multiples of any kind? I'm like, no. <laughs> Why would you ask that? I said, okay, do you, uh, you guys been on you know, treatments of any kind, IV or something like that? And, and uh, I'm like, well, actually, no, but th that's what that clinic also did. And so I thought, maybe that's why she's asking. You know. she, and, and Colleen's at this point going, why are you asking these questions? And she goes, because you're having triplets. And she flipped the monitor around and there was our three little girls, uh, hearts just beating. And they were eight, eight, eight weeks at that point, but we just lost it, right? Colleen started laughing and screaming and saying, oh, who put you up to this? And just couldn't, we couldn't control ourselves. And I'm thinking my whole world had just changed, right? Uh, suddenly, I'm not just a grad student with one kid, but I'm a grad student with four kids, all under the age of two. Uh, employment is not rich and uh, lucrative and promising in this field as an academic, you know, very similar in some ways to the ministry. Uh, I'm like, oh boy, what is next? And just suddenly, uh, <laughs> you know, everything changed from that moment. So, but we had a really supportive uh, community in Waterloo and our church family there had you know, showers for us and we got all kinds of um, support and, and help early on. Um, but we still were facing the prospect that I was nearly finished a PhD in a field that was difficult to find work in. And, um, and so we actually moved back to PEI. We bought your current house, <laughs> which was a real fixer-upper at that point, and it was when, still was when you got it, but we, we put a bunch into it, and, uh, and in the early stage, we kind of just hunkered down there, and the girls were babies, and I think until they were two or three years old, we stayed there. 
And that's when the whole kind of path to academia becomes maybe a little more interesting um, because I was always thinking, okay, how can I just you know, pivot quickly and find some job that will just put food on the table? Um, <clears throat> and um, I was looking for things and would find a couple of opportunities in six months here, little contracts here and there, that things that I could kind of use my PhD, my specialties um, for, but it was, it was really difficult, and uh, every time, um, there's been lots of moments like this in our lives, but where, where we're kind of like, okay, God, we have no idea what is next. Um, maybe we'll just quit what we're doing right now and, and do something totally different. And there were lots of those moments, especially as a new PhD uh, looking for work, the job market is abysmal. Um, and I'd be like, all right, I'm quitting and I'm going to do this kind of, um, now they call it alt-ac or alt alternate academic careers, like, but I'll uh, get into a consulting business or something like that. And then I would get this sort of out of the blue kind of an opportunity for a two-year contract as a postdoctoral fellow. Now that's a fancy term for kind of like a placement, right, where you, you it's really not permanent. And so the first one, uh, we could stay in the house in Kingston, which was really cool. Um, the second one really required us to move to London, Ontario. And so we did. And uh, again, a huge blessing. Um, an old family, an old friend through the Waterloo Church had a house in a very difficult housing market and we needed you know, a place with bedrooms and uh, actual space. And they, they got us set up and actually sold us that house for a song or well, for a really good price. And um, so we had a good place uh, and a good job. And again, as that neared its end, I was thinking, yeah, I guess this is the end, right? Like there's, there's still no jobs, no permanent tenure track jobs. Um, so when you say tenure track, that means uh, it's kind of not a finite contract, but it, it leads toward something called tenure, which in academia is a, is a generally permanent, almost life, basically lifetime position. Um, so every time that contract would get close to the end and be like, well, I guess this is it. What can I do next? We're looking around like college and trying to retrain or get another trade. And then suddenly you get this other opportunity. And so when we were there, we got offered one in Saskatchewan and it was a three-year contract. And I thought, wow, it's pretty good, but we don't know anything about Saskatchewan. So we went out to Saskatoon and we lived there for uh, one year. And again, that was like, okay, this is great. I'm going to keep doing my research, which I really love and care about, but um, probably this is the end. And then suddenly I got a job in Arizona and I went down there and that was an actual tenure track job. And it was a really cool place to be, Arizona, living in Tempe, which is right next to Phoenix. Um, so one of the top five metropolitan areas in, in the United States. Really neat opportunities. Um, they worked out the whole visa and, and kind of moving and working there. But then Colleen, um, you know, she got into a really great student program, a graduate program that was kind of leading to kind of the field that she wanted to work in with counseling and, and helping people. And we thought, this is great, you know, we will never leave here. This, we live in paradise. We had like palm trees on our road and a swimming pool in the backyard. And it's kind of like, wow, how far uh, God has brought us. It's amazing. I'm like, we will never leave this place and put our kids through another move unless, I don't know, I get offered a Canada research chair at my hometown. And that will never happen. <laughs> I remember thinking those thoughts. And, uh, and then I kind of got a wind of something that had come up at UPEI, which is in this kind of job market, UPEI is one of the most difficult, a small university, especially in your hometown, you know, very unlikely that, uh, that you, you find these opportunities. And this uh, new program had appeared um, 
that was looking at digital kind of communication. It's called Applied Communication Leadership and Culture. And this program needed a Canada Research Chair. And uh, they heard about me and the work I did. And they said, hey, would you want to apply? And I did. And here we are. <laughs> One of the things that I have enjoyed just about your story is kind of God's faithfulness when something was coming to an end. Oh, like there's a new opportunity and just kind of following that. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but knowing, knowing you and knowing Colleen, uh, I want to talk a little bit about just what we we're talking about before we kind of started the podcast of university from a Christian perspective, uh, lots of Christians, and I'll speak to my own life, uh, they get very nervous when they think about like their kids going off to university, that the pressures, that this is where the mind is going to be corrupted, blah, 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 blah. Walk me through your own experience of kind of growing up in a home similar to mine, kind of conservative Christians, uh, going off to university, and some of the things that you were confronted with, but also a word of comfort to parents who have kids that are on the eve of going into that world and they might be a little bit nervous. Yeah. Kind of start with your own story with that. Right. So when I went to Bible college, admittedly, I was probably going into a program that reaffirmed much of what I'd already been uh, taught and told, but more uh, in depth. The, the benefit of that program, there were many, but the benefit of it was that it was a really small uh, group of people and it was a... Uh, Christian College, um, Cortha Lakes Bible College, and it was, <clears throat> which actually doesn't exist anymore, but it's really small. It's more like a discipleship program, and it was uh, always a student body of 20 to 30, and we just made the best friends, and we really, really close, and that's such an important time of your life to have those relationships. That can happen in university or college or in, in other communities, but from there, I needed to there, you know, there, there really wasn't much in that field either at that point, as you know, unless you go into kind of seminary and the full, and that was uh, on my mind. But um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go into you know the secular universities and and just get a degree there, as many people do. And I remember having uh, a good friend of the family who who had trusted a lot, but saying, oh, you know, you got to be really careful, Josh. There's, you know, don't take a course in philosophy or something like that. I know people who people you know, gone into those and have just you know, completely fallen away from the faith. So there's, it kind of set up the idea that there were like courses that were, courses and programs that were okay. And then of course they were totally off limits. And I just thought, what's, you know, there's, I you know, believe that uh, God has a plan for my life and why would he, uh, I just wasn't afraid of that. So I kind of went in with that in mind and, you know, took a philosophy course or two. I took a Bachelor of Arts. Um, and uh, and in history, I was actually encountered with a whole lot of um, real challenges to what I had believed, and the kind of idea that you know it's just it's just not true that Christians have always done good things and Christians are good people. Well, that is you know, you don't have to look too deep into history <laughs> to realize wow, <laughs> there is a lot of uh, a lot of problems on this earth, and you know we'll get into creation care and that kind of thing, but. Um, in, in environmental degradation that, that Christians have been at the heart of, or um, and and you know we're talking about truth and reconciliation problems right now. That was is with the church, right? That was that uh, was was running a lot of those programs. Um, so what did I do with that? And and I, I went through some real 
uh, deep crisis of faith in those programs. But I kind of always thought of that original thought that, you know, why would God, if God really is, uh, if he really does care about me and has brought me this far, why would he you know, just let me dash upon the rock? So I, I kind of, I guess, dared to, to question and to go through these programs honestly. Um, and it was a real challenge. And I felt at that point that a lot of the sort of theologies, the systematic uh, theologies that I'd been taught in the Bible college were kind of stripped away and they were, I set them aside for, for a moment and just decided, you know, to see what's left. And, and I think that was the moment where I came to um, realize that what was left was Jesus and my relationship with him and the fact that he died to save me. And that wasn't, um, that, nothing about that changed. You know, there really wasn't anything else. Like lots of the other beliefs about what Christianity was and what the church should do, um, I really couldn't uh, continue thinking about that without a whole lot of doubt and questioning. But the fact of what remained that, you know, Jesus was still among all the other gods, among all the other leaders that I could follow, he was the one that made the most sense to me because there's nobody else who's kind of sacrificed Right, and given their life uh, for us and then lived that life as a model and believed, you know, that he is God's son. Um, and so anyway, I, I you know, had, had all those things in mind and really grew a lot, I think, as a person and as a Christian, although it wasn't a, wasn't a typical trajectory of growth that, you, that, we, that young people sometimes know about. So I'd say, you know, just go into it without fear and go into it with, um, with a kind of honesty about who you are and relationships with... Uh, with your community and with God and say, you know, I believe that on the other end, you'll make me a stronger person and prepare me for service in this world. Mm. I know even in my own university uh, experience, there's moments in the classroom where professors would say something and you're working through a particular framework or idea and th something in my life childhood would crumble and all that was left is this person and work of Jesus Christ, which, uh, I, I appreciate that part of your story in, in significant ways. All, all of our idols fall <laughs> at they, some point, right? Do. Except they for him. really do. They really do. <laughs> and that's so, natural. That's like a totally normal part of growing up yeah. and, and maturing. And, yeah. And the, I think the main thing is just to not be afraid of that and to, um, to admit that we're all human. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, switching to your work a little bit, like you're like Chandler to me, where I know you're employed at UPEI, uh, we've been friends for several years, but I'm not entirely sure what it is that you do. Like everyone kind of knew Chandler. He was a fun guy to be around. <laughs> and you ask him like, what do you do? I'm like, I don't really know. Uh, Josh, he works at UPEI. Uh, so describe a little bit about the work that you do now, just so we understand that, that aspect of it. Colleen's going to laugh about this one because it took me a few minutes to realize that you were talking about a TV show uh, <laughs> about friends. Because usually when I, uh, when Colleen and I are talking about pop culture, she she'll know everything, right? Having grown up in the 80s and 90s and, uh, and having had a TV and probably spent a fair amount of time in front of it, uh, <laughs> she knows all the shows and, and she'll make references like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she's like, well, were you born in a barn? Then she goes, oh wait, you were. <laughs> you lived in a, you little redneck PEI, -er. <laughs> which is not far from the truth, but it wasn't a barn, it was an oyster shack and I correct her. You know, my parents actually were a little bit of sort of back to the landers in some ways. They, uh, they moved out to the, 
the boondocks in, in Hazel Grove and started a little farm from nothing. And, uh, and my first house for a few months was an oyster shack <laughs> as they were building their, uh, their first house, you know, from scratch. They have a really cool story because it's, you know, they've, they've really lived uh, off the land. There were many um, sort of fall meals that my mom would, you know, told me about later. And she like, sometimes we'd look around and say like, everything we're eating is something that we grew ourselves from the from the turkey to the to the potatoes and all the fixings, right? Everything here, the bread, we used to mill flour at one point. Uh, and uh, it was really awesome growing up on a farm, but it was kind of interesting because I sort of thought, uh, doesn't everybody grow up on a farm? <laughs> right, all my friends went to Bluefield, right? So a lot of my friends were farmers and, and I thought this is a pretty normal, typical experience. But then I realized later that it's not at all. Um, and that I find super interesting that now in Canada, only 3% of us are involved in agriculture directly. Yeah, and so um, it's it's kind of as farmers. And so I, I thought, oh, okay, why is that? And so I was kind of, I had that decision decision to make. I could kind of try to keep farming or maybe I should just go use my brain and, and, and my thoughts and learn about this transition and teach others about it because I find it super interesting. We're, we're at this moment that a lot of people are calling the Anthropocene where we have uh, created a modern world for all intents and purposes, and this is something important to keep in mind when, when thinking about scripture, and that is completely different in almost every way, except for our own human natures and hearts, <laughs> which is important, but uh, our context is completely different. It's unrecognizable. And so uh, one historian wrote a book called Something New Under the Sun, and of course he's referring to Solomon, right? Yes. Who, who, and, and like many uh, said, oh, there's kind of earth continues as it always has been, and in the French, the le plus ça change, le plus c'est la même chose. It's the more things change, the more they're the same. Over and over, over the centuries, there were small changes, nations rose and fell, but really it's today, it's the last 200 years that we have this remarkably different society. And so having you know, been born in a barn and then, uh, and then kind of entering the, the world in the late 90s and kind of figuring out like this great uh, great big world, I wanted to understand it and, and how we got to this point. So I find it really interesting that we now have, despite all the changes in this, this modern world, the Anthropocene and the, the sort of acceleration of a whole bunch of different trends that have happened lately, not just population, which has exploded to over 8 billion people, um, and projected to reach 10 billion people, um, and then they think it'll probably stabilize around that for a bunch of reasons, but um, not just that, but everything from uh, time spent on airplanes to the use of cell phones and technology and uh, the amount of energy we consume and the amount of waste we produced and the amount of just, it's all of those factors are now multiplied by many, many fold. So I wanted to uh, understand that and, and kind of know as much as I could about that, but from a food and agriculture perspective, the most remarkable um, exception is that the amount of land that we have used to feed a billion people has not increased significantly in the last few decades, which is pretty interesting. So we did expand rapidly in during the periods of colonization and resettlement and and you know that brings with it lots of questions of a reconciliation and, and use of land. But interestingly, we now produce this massive amount of food from the same amount of land that we did about 100 years ago. So I'll give you an example of, of what I mean by this, this massive change. Um, if you think of a pioneer farmer, 
here in, in sort of like the eastern parts of North America in the early 1800s, uh, every single loaf of bread that they were producing food for took, so every kilogram of grain took seven minutes of their working hours. And that's everything from harnessing the horses to doing the harrowing and, and all the kind of work over the space of a year. Uh, every loaf was seven minutes. Just a hundred years later, in 1900, um, agriculture had changed so much by that point that that same kilogram of flour or kilogram of grain only took uh, 25 seconds. So this 95% reduction in the time, 18-fold increase in the labor productivity. So that's how kind of dramatically it changed even then. Now the growth still is pretty large in the 20th century. In fact, most people don't know this, but the growth of agriculture actually exceeded the growth of manufacturing. Um, in terms of kind of uh, uh, labor productivity. So by 2000, or our time, um, farmers take only now six seconds to produce the same amount of a grain. That's four times uh, more again. So agriculture has changed uh, enormously. And here in PEI, uh, I get to study it in this kind of laboratory. You think of PEI as Canada's food island, but the changes that happened here are actually really recent in the, maybe the last three or, four gener uh, three or four decades. So there's a generation still alive today that remembers an almost kind of pre-modern, very different at least style of agriculture. And so a lot of my research is talking to farmers and, uh, and inviting them to share their stories about the change and you know, the pros and the cons of that change and what it was like to go through it. So when you think of that land productivity and the, and the massive increases that have unfolded the last kind of 200 years, um, talk to me a little bit about kind of creation care because there has to be like a, obviously a breaking point that we can't, we can't go much further in some of that stuff. Is it sustainable? The scriptures talk at length around our, in, our involvement with, our care of, uh, and I know that that kind of rattles around in your own mind and the work that you do. Just talk to me a little bit about that kind of creation care, what you see, um, and some of the stuff that the scriptures would speak to. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. God through the law talks about, um, you know, give the field a rest every now and again so that it can almost replenish itself. So that would be an example kind of from the scriptures, caring for the created world so it can function the way that God has designed it to function. So just talk to me a little bit about that from the work that you do. Yeah, so I would say there are uh, two things. No, I'm not a theologian or an expert in this area. So I'll just, the kind of personal impressions from, from what I see in scripture and from what I know. I, the first is that, you know, when we approach science and we approach the natural world today, we need to do it knowing that we are part of it and we are connected to it. We're not separate from nature. Um, and that's a big mistake that we've made in, at certain points in the past. But we're, so we're very much connected to it and part of it. Um, but we shouldn't be afraid of it either. We should not be uh, uh, kind of afraid of what the scientists are telling us. We should be fully engaged in, uh, in understanding and kind of admitting where, you know, expert knowledge is, is required, uh, but then kind of saying, okay, now what can I do with what I know um, and how can I kind of learn more about it? So, um, so that same kind of uh, story as before, not to be uh, afraid of new knowledge, um, but to recognize that you know, we see in part, we only know part of the story. So um, with our fallibility in mind, let's just keep learning. Um, and then the second part is that, uh, yeah, the scripture doesn't 
in my mind, it's got some really interesting kind of uh, metaphors and stories about, you know, the, well, there's the two accounts of creation in Genesis, mm -hmm. and interestingly, the second one really puts the humans are at the at the beginning of it, and really the kind of central part of that second mm -hmm. description, as I recall. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, they're gardeners, right? This mm. is a garden, and God's given them uh, the responsibility yeah, to, to care for the yeah. garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, and that's like. Um, there's it's always been this tension in Christian uh, theology, from what I understand, between dominion and care, mm -hmm. right? There's a there's a lot of language about dominion, and not as much about care, but it's implied, right? And mm -hmm. what you're talking about, the the jubilee and the yes. sort of year of, years of rest, is part of that. Yeah. And it's kind of always implied that you must care for nature in order to keep the garden growing. There's yes. it's very obvious what happens to a garden if you stop caring for it, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> I know from experience. Yeah, dominion and rule does not mean. Yeah. take from and yeah. ruin uh, yeah. and, and kind of knowing a bit of kind of church history and theologies that are at play in present it it lacks often the care of the garden yeah. uh, versus well I'm going to use the garden for my financial gain regardless of what happens to the garden um, and I know that you would probably see some of that full on in the work that you do absolutely and and just like kind of um, the same approach of, you know, letting God uh, um, boldly show us where uh, where he wants us to go in this path. Um, you know, when I think about environmentalism and the major um, gains that, that have happened in that way in the last 30 or 40 uh, years, uh, again, I think, you know, where's God in this? And um, Tim Keller has been doing some really interesting um, kind of thinking about this lately. Um, he points back to uh, an, a kind of famous essay by Lynn White in the 1960s called The Historical Roots of Ecological Crisis. And, and that really points to, um, it's, it's, it's saying, you know, basically it's Christianity. That's the problem, right? We've, we've been taught to think of the, the kind of garden or nature as something to be dominated or something to be exploited. And this, uh, he, he says, like, the modern technological conquest of nature is what really led to our environmental crisis. And that's something I, right there, that I stop and I push back on, and and I see that in, in much kind of environmental thought, where uh, they've described the relationship between humans and nature over time, and in many ways say that Christianity has told humans to behave this way, is a, a form of conquest, right? Conquering nature and especially in the new world here in North America, kind of subduing the plains or subduing the, removing the forests and f warring against nature and against the forest. But, and that's a pretty common um, thought in environmentalist uh, thought. And for all it's good and what, in what it's accomplished, I think I push back on that because when I see um, the history of farmers, people who are most related to the land, I don't actually see a war as much as I see care and sustainability, especially in older parts of the world where for thousands of years, uh, well, at least hundreds of years um, in most communities, agriculture has gone on in a sustainable way uh, for a long, long time and has produced and fed and kept the people employed and 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 uh, nourished there in those environments. And so I feel every time I every time I hear that saying, oh yes, yeah, so you look at farmers, they've always just been thinking about how they can conquer the next part of the world. Certainly there has been a lot of that, but I also look for the ways that farmers um, have cultivated, literally, their environment. Um, I see a lot of that in Mennonite theology too. There's a interesting kind of 
uh, tension there between dominion and care um, uh, in, in Mennonite communities and sort of Anabaptist theology. But anyway, it's kind of, uh, we, we see it in, in sort of so many, just the way that I went through university and realized, oh, there's a lot of people of faith here and there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who are really dedicated to making, uh, to caring for our communities, to justice, like another very common theme, right, that Tim Keller speaks of, uh, justice for not just the poor, but the environments that we are in, right, and eco-justice is another big part of this. Um, you know, when I see, uh, when I look around at, at kind of in, environmental um, thinkers, I see a lot of people of faith, and it's interesting, there's, there's groups like Araca or Arocha, I can never remember how they pronounce that, but it's, a, it's one that you know, started in Portugal in the 80s and has been going on and it's really kind of reaching out and helping a lot of different church communities engage in sustainable uh, practice and conservation really directly. Um, and even some of the kind of more famous ones like Joel Salatin, who Tim Keller also talks about, but he's the farmer from, from Polyface Farms who uh, Michael Pollan writes a lot about. I didn't actually know this, but he was a Christian and he believed strongly that he, uh, that the sort of regenerative work that he was doing with agriculture, where he in, indeed came upon some, some land that had really been over farmed and, and kind of harmed by industrial forms of agriculture. He was trying a whole bunch of new things that were looking at the balance between different types of livestock and different types of crop. How can they work together? And he actually called it forgiveness farming. And it was all about restoring balance and regenerating the land. That was being used by Michael Pollan, who's like a full-on secular author, and I uh, didn't realize it until I was listening to Keller talk about that, that Joel Salatin was actually a Christian. A lot of this, a lot of his approach to how he improved and restored the land was based in faith. And there are a number of resources for people who want to learn more about this. Um, I've mentioned Tim Keller already. He had a kind of whole sermon series back in, I think it was the late 2000s, early 2010s, where he talked about um, can faith be green? And that moved into, so there were some interesting kind of discussions there. A lot, a lot of it's based on uh, John Stott's uh, theology. Um, from what I mentioned, and then there's also some Anabaptist theology, which is uh, quite interesting on this Mennonite, um, the Mennonite experience in particular. But um, Tim Keller is also more recently talking a lot about uh, justice and shalom and how the kind of fabric of shalom can be restored or how God wants it to be restored. And so a lot of his, if you think of his uh, more recent sermon series on creation, care, and justice, you'll, sh you'll find some interesting stuff that way. Um, there are uh, also kind of courses and online websites that I like. Uh, University of Exeter has a, in their theology and religion program, they have a, a, a course on called Beyond Stewardship, and it looks kind of at the roots of stewardship and asks that question, is Christianity to blame uh, specifically for it? Are, are there solutions to be found in there as well? And there's a group I think I mentioned called Arasha or Arosha, which is a, uh, originally a Portuguese uh, group, and now it's got chapters all over the world, including one in Canada. And it's got, uh, if you go to A-R-O-C-H-A dot C-A, uh, you can learn more about kind of creation care opportunities that are uh, faith-based. Um, you know, their latest newsletter, for instance, looks specifically at sustainable agriculture. So there's groups like that, there's Blessed Earth, and you just, the more you kind of go down that path, you'll find that there's actually a whole bunch of groups where people uh, of faith and followers of Jesus are, are getting involved in this um, and not shying away from it. So, yeah, that should get you started. What's one thing, Josh, that you love about your work, <laughs> that you just love about your work? 
Well, I love being part of the process of discovery, um, adding new knowledge to, to um, problems that we have today. And I think history can be part of that. And uh, knowing not just how we got to where we are, because that's one important thing that history does, but one thing that the arts and humanities does, and I tell my students this all the time, is like the sciences and the engineering fields and innovation, they tell us what is possible, what we can do, but often the arts and humanities, and I would bring theology into that, ask the question, what should we do? How should we eat? What is a sustainable way of eating? And we could get into this, if you wanna talk about like the balance of meat and in our diet, is do we, should we be vegetarian or vegan? Well, I think you know, for some people that works and there's a whole bunch of choices and reasons from, from diet to ethical reasons why people do that. Um, I personally eat meat and enjoy it, but I wanna eat a lot less of it and I wanna eat it in ways that are sustainable. So I actually buy, um, buy grass-fed beef from a farmer who goes to this church actually. And, uh, and I, don't know, I can tell you the taste is amazing. And I don't mind paying a little bit more um, if I can afford it to know that that, that was a you know ethically sustainably raised animal that ate the good soil from the good nutrients of PEI soil and replenished it in a cycle that's been going on for tens of that well for ten thousand years in agriculture. And to say, you know, to say that that can't be done sustainably, I think of course it's it's false. We can we can actually eat sustainably well into the future, but it's going to take a whole kind of um, reevaluation of our food system and you know today even today there are images going around of the potato crisis in PEI and people you know mulching up potatoes and putting them back into the snow through through uh, snowblowers uh, it's what a remarkable picture to see uh, what our farmers have gone through uh, because of the economic crisis of the potato ward at the moment but um, to know that partly when we specialize so much in one set of commodities or one small group of commodities and we don't have as mixed a, t a style of um, agriculture as we have in the past here in PEI, you know, that potato, those potatoes all could have been eaten or large amounts of them could have been eaten by animals, right? And so here we've got, now we have actually a very small number of animals left in PEI. Um, so a lot of our meat comes from concentrated feedlots in the United States. Well, why couldn't some of that be produced here? And then the nutrients that those animals produce goes back onto the land and helps replenish and regenerate agriculture. Um, you know, obviously our potato industry is very important and it's, and it's not going anywhere, but um, just being more aware historically of the types of agriculture we've done here in PEI might help us to create a more sustainable future. Mm. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's Whenever I'm around you and play games with you, I'm aware you are an incredibly smart guy, and I just appreciate that <laughs> giftedness that you have. Uh, thank you for sharing a bit of your story, your family, and look forward to learning more from you in the coming days. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks, Phil. Stay tuned for our next episode of the Corner Stories podcast as Pastor Phil interviews Aaron Gibbons. I always did pray um, then as well, and I did give credit to God for certain things, but looking back as an adult, I guess, and seeing how it all did work out is pretty unbelievable. And you just, it's such a comfort knowing that he was there with me all that time. And I, I do believe that I knew that um, as a little girl, but it's really neat to see it as an adult looking back. and. Um, yeah, just I know though that those people were placed in my life, and I that I'm just really thankful for that. Mm. I wouldn't be who I am yeah. 
Let this message about Christ and all his richness fill our lives. See you next time.